Welcome to Last Lamb Standing with the Lamb Sisters, Drew and Meg. Each week, Meg covers a topic that is crazy, spooky, goosebump-inducing, or just plain old WTF, while Drew covers subjects that relate in some tenuous nature but is completely real, explained, and sometimes downright scientific. So grab your safety blankets and microscopes and join us on our strangely empirical quest. Hello. Hello. Long time no see. <laughs> it's been about like one hour, ago. an hour and a half. It is so foggy outside. And it was coming from Metairie. It was getting foggier and foggier as you got into New Orleans. You Well, it was coming from the lake and you could mm -hmm. see, see it, it blowing. Yeah. In. Yeah. And I was standing outside talking to my neighbor and it literally like I could, we were just watching the fog roll in and i have Creepy. to um drive through city park to get here mm -hmm. and it is so beautiful the golf course mm -hmm. looked amazing because obviously there's no one in it you cannot see yeah <laughs> to golf but it's just like desolate it looks it looks like a countryside and that's the the extent of our countryside in the city <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a horror movie called the fog, the fog. yeah yes. something like that and, and it brought like a sea monster or something you know some sort of fog monster that would did they hide out in a mall at one point this was a old movie i want to say it was like a 70s movie oh okay i don't recall actually seeing the whole thing though i, re I remember watching a horror movie now where there was a fog rolling in and considering it's these days they probably redid it at some point right <laughs> because there's no new ideas for movies right <laughs> Yeah, but I love it. It's spooky. Fog is one of my favorite weather phenomena. 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 Okay. Yeah, tidbit. Yes. So this tidbit comes from our oldest sister, Sarah. Uh, she texted it to me. I was like, this is perfect. Apparently, in the Museum of Icelandic Sorcery and Witchcraft, they have a pair of necro pants on display <laughs> they were made in the 17th century from a dead man's skin but then they that's what they said they open up with that but then they say well gotta burst the bubble that these pants that they have on display are actually a replica and a mm. mold uh, from a mold made from a man except the most intimate part which is made up <laughs> <laughs> so wait are these pants like we define pants or pants like England define, defines pants. How does England define pants? Underwear. Oh, no, they're pant pants. Okay. So originally in history of witchcraft and sorcery, uh, necro pants were made out of the skin of an actual man. And they were believed to bring wealth to the one who wore them. Um, uh, yeah. So, is it worth it? <laughs> well, if you're a sorcerer, but this is the kicker. Okay. The pants must be made with skin that is completely intact with no holes or scratches. The sorcerer then steps into the skin, which will immediately become one with his own. And then he must steal a coin from a poor widow, either at Christmas, Easter, or Whit Sunday, which apparently is a Christian festival on the seventh Sunday after Easter. 
and the coin is kept in the scrotum. <laughs> it will <laughs> it will then draw money from living persons and the scrotum will never be empty when the sorcerer treks. But the thing is, is that he has to keep the pants on. I'm just going to read this. However, his spiritual well-being is at risk until he gets rid of the necropants before he dies. If he dies with the pants on, his body will become infested with lice as soon as he passes away. The sorcerer must therefore find somebody that is willing to take the pants and put his leg into the right leg before the sorcerer steps out of the left one. The pants <laughs> will keep on drawing money for generations of owners. So you have to pass on these pants before you die. Otherwise, lice will eat your body. I so mean, you have to somehow get the skin off without cutting it I off? Mean, but they're sorcerers. It's magic. Oh, they can right. do it, yeah. right? Sure. <laughs> and then you get it. So, so you have to make sure that person is just slightly bigger than you are so you can fit into their legs I mean, and scrotum. I would imagine that skin is elastic-ish, right? But yes, yeah, I mean, you're and not, then you like, got to keep them on be... forever. Well, no, not forever. You got to hand them down to someone. I, it does not go into what if you just want to take them off. <laughs> <laughs> but can you? Is that an option? Without handing them down, and then they just—I guess—they just lose their magic powers of. Here's a lovely picture of a woman staring right at the 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 dick of the pants. <laughs> right at the scrotum. Wonder if it's full of money. It's full of money. <laughs> I guess you will get rich if it's causing you to go around stealing money from old ladies. Poor old widows only on Christmas, Easter, or Whit Sunday. <laughs> so weird. Lovely. Um, that's it. That's my tip. Okay. What's yours? Um so the, a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about microplastics, mm -hmm. and I came across a story about a team in Australia at the RMIT University have created a magnetic powder that will capture microplastics. So by definition, microplastics are very hard to filter because they're so small, they go through a lot of filters. Mm -hmm. So this is a powder that is absorbent. So it absorbs some water, but it also absorbs the plastic as part of that. And then they made it magnetic. So you would, and this is for treating wastewater. So not doing this out in the sea, but capturing it before it gets into the sea. So you would treat the water with this powder. In my head, it seems like it like gels up kind of, but not all the water. So it's capturing some of the water, all the plastics, and then it goes through a magnet, which draws out the powder with the plastics along with it. Oh, okay. And then, um, and it's capturing pretty much 100% of the plastics when they're doing the testing. Yeah. And then you take the part that you've taken out and then you can wash it with an ethanol solution and it separates the powder from the plastic again. And then you can reuse the powder, which they've oh. done up to six times already, but they think it can be way more. They just haven't tested it that far yet. And then the issue becomes, then what do you do with the plastics that you've captured? And so they're experimenting with that, but there are apparently some enzymes that will eat plastics into a non-harmful, non-hazardous material. There's even apparently one bacteria that will eat plastic and it turns it into vanillin. Vanillin? Vanillin. <laughs> and it's the molecule responsible for vanilla's dominant taste. Huh. Oh and God. you supposedly find to eat. It hasn't been approved by the FDA or anything, but 
it also is used in other things that have nothing to do with taste, but a useful solution that bacteria is eating plastic and creating this molecule. Oh, wait, 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 pause. But anyway, yeah, two different things, yeah. The vanillin thing, the enzymes are eating the plastic and the result is the vanillin? Mm-hmm. That's so a bacteria that- and it eats the plastic and the basically bacteria poop is <laughs> okay so then are they then gonna start making a fake vanilla extract, extract? yeah like they, i mean they they could it's not approved for any of that right yeah but like potentially but potentially that could. is crazy to mm-hmm. turn plastic into vanilla into extract <laughs> that's a that'd be crazy so but there, and then there's other enzymes that can do other plastic you know deal with other plastics and stuff but it's all very limited um and so they're they need to experiment with, you know, what they can do with these microplastics and um, after they've extracted it. But the tidbit itself was about the pulling it out of the water yeah. to begin with. And That's so, really cool. and this process takes a couple of hours rather than there's, you know, other people are experimenting with other ways to do it that takes several days. Mm-hmm. But this only takes a couple of hours because you're basically, I guess, I mean, I don't know how they're like in the grand scheme of wastewater treatment, you know, how you treat it all versus you know whatever they're doing in the lab that's a limited amount of water right i'm not sure but that's what they're you know experimenting with is how you do it at scale and cheaper and uh real life experiments the powder yes the fact that it's reusable makes it far more um affordable yeah sustainable that is so interesting it's really blows my mind to think about all of the scientists in the world and the very minute little tiny things that they work on. Mm -hmm. Vivian asked me uh, the other day, she said, if I studied, uh, what was it? Environmental science, what would I do with that? And I said, literally think of anything in the world, (laughs) (laughs) any plant, any tiny little anything Mm -hmm. you could delve into that one subject and that could become your life's work. Like yep. it's, um, it's like endless possibilities. There's no, like and the amount one... of time it takes. So, so they're studying the same thing for decades, 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Or I also think of that. Um, when I think of like NASA scientists or, yeah. um, and creators who are, whatever they're working on now, they're not going to see to fruition right. because, if they're helping create something that's going to go to Mars, that's not going to happen for another 15 years. And then it's going to take another 15 years for that to happen and come back. It's right. Yeah. It's, it's mind blowing. And all the things that they can do is just really hard for me to wrap my head around, especially the microscopic part of it. Right. I also feel like I would get so bored, but like it's that's hard why for me. these people do it because yeah. they are very passionate about it. Right. But yes. I can't see how it would be very boring. I mean, scientists. I mean, I that's I, you know, think I should have been a scientist sometimes, but yes, then I, I think too. about like, oh no, you got to be in the same place for <laughs> twenty years just to I get any to one study done at this one molecule every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, so we did something a little bit different this week, and Drew picked the topic, and she gave me the topic of zombies. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure. So what are you going to be talking about? So I'm talking about the zombification of animals or insects, really, in the animal kingdom, which happens a lot, and it's super scary. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm talking about the zombification of humans, specifically Haitian 
zombies. Oh, nice. So, so wait, is yours then fact? Yes, it is. Okay. I was going to say that's, I couldn't, I like was looking around for stories of like zombie encounters, but it's most people zombie. Well, yes. Well, yes. It's all sci-fi stuff. Or like if there's like quote unquote media determined zombie encounters, it's always a scientific reason. Right of why it happened but the thing that i came across most was that i found most interesting was was this um haitian zombies mm-hmm. so it's pretty cool i mean uh, there is i guess a little bit of unexplained parts to it mm-hmm. but it actually does happen so okay you want to go first i guess so yeah all right so we're going to start with because i've got a, a couple of them Uh, We're going to start with the zombie ant fungus. So we'll start in the fungi world. It is called, apologies for my Latin, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Sounds good. I practiced that a couple of times. (laughs) Uh, So this is a fungus that infects an ant and it grows into its body, takes all of its nutrients, takes over its mind, and it makes the ant crawl exactly 25 centimeters above the forest floor because apparently that's where the temperature and the humidity is just right for this fungus exactly 25 centimeters wait the fungus makes the ants crawl 25 yes. ah. oh we'll get there okay yeah and then it makes the ant clamp onto the stem of a leaf and then the ant dies and the fungus grows downward out of its head grows its little spore cap and then is able to sprinkle its spores all over the ants that are on the ground in order to keep the whole system going. Oh, man. Fun- fungi are, are fascinating. They're fascinating. Can I do Considering a- they have no brains, they are fascinating. I know. Can I, just quick yeah, fun please. fact about fungi that I learned the other day. Mycelium. You know what mycelium mm-hmm. is? Okay. The network of fungus that connects plants underneath the ground. There can be up to eight miles of mycelium in one square or uh, cubic inch of soil. Eight miles? Eight miles. Nice. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's a, it's crazy, crazy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we talk, uh, we've mentioned quite a few times how scary the sea is, but the microscopic insect and plant world can be just as scary. Yeah. <laughs> and wild and fascinating. So to see how... The fungus is doing this. There's an entomologist at Penn State named David Hughes. Uh, he and some students uh, were doing an experiment with some of these ants. So the student would, took a special microscope and would cut slices of the ant. It was 50 nanometers, which is one one thousandth the width of human hair. That's what I don't understand. How did they cut that then? That's, I don't know. <laughs> lasers and microscopes i don't know i mean you would think that the any kind of blade you use would be bigger than that Correct. So how do you that's what i don't understand <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know but they did um and then she took images of all the slices and then fed it to computer created a 3d model of it and this was an infected ant uh, and created a 3d model so that she could see the fungus versus the ant okay so she was labeling or annotating that where she could tell which part was fungus, which part was ant. It took her three months to just to annotate one muscle. Mm-mm. So then they 
employed a, a computer scientist to create AI to teach it how to tell the difference between fungus and ant and mm -hmm. help. So they had AI help create this model as well. But it, then it allowed him to see what the fungus, how the fungus was growing in the ant. So the fungus starts out as it's a spore, a single-celled spore, um, and it gets into the blood system, and then it'll re reproduce. And so then you have all these singular spores doing their own things. Eventually, they start to talk to each other, and they'll start to link up, and they start to communicate. And then you get more and more, and it grows further and further in, and so it becomes really a colony of a super entity. Mm -hmm. So even though it's it's acting as one entity, it's really all these individual cells that are connected together. And it, it will grow in the spaces between muscles. It'll start to grow into the muscles, but it actually does not touch the brain. So it won't grow into the brain. It grows everywhere else, but it won't grow into the brain. Hmm. But it still controls the brain by sending out chemical uh, yeah, <laughs> it uses chemicals messages. to send messages what's to the, what's the brain. The so when it needs to do something, it sends out certain chemicals, talks to each other, and says, "Do this," and everyone sends out the chemicals to tell the brain to do something. So that's how it controls the brain without actually touching it, which is interesting. In the case of the muscle movement, it might—they're not one hundred percent sure if it's telling the brain just to move the muscle or it might be cutting off the neurons from the muscles or from the brain to the muscles. It might be cutting that off completely and actually just using the chemicals that it has in the muscles since it's grown into the muscles. It might just be doing that locally. So it's just telling the muscles to move. Oh my gosh. And if that's the case, then the ant, then that means the ant is completely cognizant. Yeah. But has no control over its body, which seems oh, really freaky it's similar to my story yeah but they're not quite sure if that's what's happening or if the other you know if it's sending the chemicals to the brain but that's pretty much how it's doing it so it sends all these chemical messages it makes the ant crawl clamp on and then it just starts to suck away all of its nutrients until the ant is dead okay can we go back to the making it walk 25 centimeters, centimeters, centimeters above the ground? Mm -hmm. How do you crawl 25 centimeters above? Oh, it's the just crawling up a tree or a bush or whatever oh, and into onto a leaf. I thought you meant it was like crawling horizontally 25 centimeters off the ground. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a feat. <laughs> I was like, so it gives it levitation. <laughs> it crawls up a tree or a bush to, okay, a, to 25 then, centimeters. Splurge all of its spores everywhere. And so that it can clamp on, grow, and then, yeah, disperse its spores. Okay, so then it disperses its spores after it... After what, the, is, what is the thing through the head again? That's the fungus. This grows straight through. See this picture here? It goes th straight through the head downward. It creates a little spore sack. So it just looks like a so it grows stick almost. Through the head, but through it doesn't affect the brain? At this point, the ant's dead. It's sucked all the nutrients out of okay, the ant. Okay, so the it dead. makes the ant crawl up mm -hmm. and then... And clamp on and, and then basically on, and it's, then it does its thing. Yeah, it takes over and 
and now the ant can't feed or do anything so it dies as the fungus is kind of taking all of its nutrients from its body so that's the ant one a lot of fungi will do this some with um i saw a on a show one for caterpillars and it basically just grows out of the head of the caterpillar yeah. and, and if you and it, i think it's an edible that one's i think an edible mushroom so you could pick It'll, it and see like the dead and just caterpillar like discard part. your caterpillar and then eat it <laughs> and um and they're very much linked so like there's you know a certain fungus for a certain caterpillar kind of life cycle so that happens quite a bit. The next one I was going to do is the jewel wasp, Ooh. which is really pretty wasp. It's a pretty small it one. It looks like an x-ray picture. It does, but it's, so it's a very iridescent. It's called a jewel wasp for a reason. It's very iridescent looking wasp. And it takes over roaches in order to feed its offspring. So the female, which is about half the size of a roach, will fly overhead, grab onto the head of the roach and it very quickly stings the thorax and sends venom in and that one is really just meant to paralyze its front so it like does it like kind of a, towards the head but part mm -hmm. of the thorax and it paralyzes just the front legs of the roach so that he can't run away in order to but that one's a very kind of short-lived paralytic you know most venoms are paralytics but longer term so that they can eat them but this one is very is short term just to keep them from running away so that she can then separately then sting his brain but a very specific part of the brain so somehow there's a connection between that that stinger and that brain so that it can find a very specific part of the brain so like she sticks the stinger in and it can even kind of move around in the brain till it finds the right spot it's like a lobotomy yeah. <laughs> um, oh, a brain for an animal apparently is called a ganglia. Wait, what? Uh, for, for an insect. Oh, weird. Ganglia. So it pierces. There's a, a sac around the ganglia. And then so it pierces that, gets into the brain, finds the right spot, and deposits the venom again. Except this venom, uh, it's the same venom, but in the brain acts differently. It's not a paralytic. It's um, basically a fear inhibitor. So it, it cuts off um, the part of the brain that's in charge of fleeing, yeah. running away. So basically now the roach is like, whatever, I don't yeah. care. It's all tapped up. <laughs> I'll do whatever. I am your servant. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a quote for this one. So the stinger is capable of feeling around the roach's head, relying on mechanical and chemical cues to find its way past the ganglion ganglionic sheath which is the insect's version of a blood-brain barrier, and inject the venom exactly where it needs to go. So what that venom does is alter the roach's behavior by getting rid of the fear part and also its metabolism. So it's going to slow down their metabolism a whole bunch. So the roach, immediately, it's a first reaction for some reason is to groom itself. Hmm. And they're not 100% sure why. It could just be because maybe as part of that, there's a dopamine rush in the, yeah. and it's just like this... Yeah. Feels good. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> or it could be that the wasp needs it to be clean in order for its larva to to eat off of it. Do you think that the venom? So that would be would the be venom programmed to tell. It would be telling it to to do that possibly, what? or it's just biding time for the wasp because the next step is the wasp then goes off 
finds a, a suitable place for layers. So she goes underground and digs out a, a layer um, that's going to be big enough for the roach and the larva or the egg that's going to turn into a larva. She does that. And about 30 minutes later, she comes back. The roach is still in the same spot. It's now finished grooming itself and kind of coming out of that and really coming out of that paralytic part. Mm-hmm. Now at this point, everything she's done if she if something were to happen to her and she didn't come back, the roach would come out of all this within about a week. Uh-huh. If she, she does come week. back, then they're yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like the the roach would survive, survive without food. Without like? well, because the paralytic would would go away within like thirty minutes, and uh-huh. so it could walk around, but it's not scared anymore of things, so it's not going to run away from predators and stuff. So oh, so it could possibly it could possibly it could survive. Eat. Yeah, it should be able to eat. Oh, okay. So it could possibly survive. It's just all walking around like doped up. Like, yeah. Yes. That's um, good. <laughs> yeah. But she does come back. So so he's screwed. So the first thing she does is rip off one of his antenna and drink his blood mm. as nourishment for herself. Because apparently this is hard work. And then she takes him by the other antenna and leads him around like a like a horse. <laughs> Wait, is she like riding his back? No, she's not riding his back, but it's like, you know, like dogs lead you, yeah. right? So but this is more like you leading a horse right. you know, by a by a lead or whatever. Yeah. So uh, so she leads him by the antenna to the hole. Oh, my gosh. Brings him in the hole and lays uh, an egg or two on his leg. On his leg, specifically. His, yeah, specifically on his leg. And then she cl- closes up the hole so predators can't can't find it. Because his metabolism has slowed down so much, he's going to survive about a week down there because he does it without food or water because she wants fresh food for the larva. Mm -hmm. So in about three days, the egg will hatch and then the larva comes out and basically starts eating the roach alive, starts eating on its outside pieces. That's like for four or five days. And then the larva... (laughs) climbs inside inside the abdomen Mm -hmm. and starts eating the organs and it's not till then that the roach actually dies oh my god until it's like kind of grown and then it kind of makes its way out of the abdomen to go live its life (laughs) oh my gosh (sighs) so gross so crazy Anyway, so there are obviously a bunch of wasps that do similar things. There's one that can dive underwater and hold its breath for a while in order to lay its egg on a certain bug larva that's in the water. Weird. There are some that'll do this to caterpillars, but then they use like the caterpillar head. They put it like at the hole of the layer so it scares off predators. (laughs) Meanwhile, the back half of the caterpillar has been eaten by their larva. There's one that does it to a spider and then it makes the spider do a a weird web. That's not a normal web, but it protects the the larva. Yeah, so there's lots of different animals that that do this. It's just ways to feed their own larva and stuff and it's so so weird. Now, in the last week, two different people sent me a different article, um, or the same article, but about a, a different kind of zombification. Um, it just so happened we we were doing that this this week, mm-hmm. which was interesting coincidence. But this was on CNN, and it was about mind control parasites in wolves. Mm-hmm. 
and how they're finding that wolves that have this parasite are more likely to leave and create their own uh, pack rather than stay with their own pack. So the parasite, you may have heard of it, is Taxoplasma gondii. You may have heard of Taxoplasmosis in relation to cats. No. Okay. No. It's one of, you know how people say that you can get diseases from cats and have you ever like seen pe- people are like grossed out by cats? Cause uh, you can, anyway. I mean, I feel like you can probably get a disease from anything. From anything, yeah. <laughs> um, well, this is one, this is a parasite that lives in the um, intestines of a cat. Okay. It likes all the acid in there and stuff. And so if they have it, you know, eventually they will poop out some of the parasites. Right. Well, that parasite then is now not in its happy place. So it wants to try and find its way back into cat intestines. Mm-hmm. And so if another animal drinks water that's been near the the poop or mm-hmm. eat something near it or whatever, or a bird. might. So like a bird might do it, a rat might do it mm-hmm. just because they're around then this parasite doesn't like to be in their intestines. So it takes over, controls their brains, and cuts off their their fear. So it makes them not afraid of things um, and take more risks, which makes them more likely, because they're already obviously around cats somehow because they got infected, so it makes them not run away when cats are nearby. So they're more likely to then be captured and eaten by the cat and then get the parasite back into oh my God. How their intestines. Does a parasite know this? I don't know. <laughs> this is so strange. Yeah. So it just knows that if it's not, basically, I think the parasite is like, this isn't my happy place. Yeah. Let's take over and make this animal die. So I maybe the next time I can find a, my happy place again. So what they found in the wolves was they were probably getting the parasite from cougars in the uh-huh. area. Um, and and so the parasite is in them and making them less fearful uh, and taking more higher risks. So therefore those are, and they tend to also have a bit more, I'm going to say attitude. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how else to say it, but um so they they might not get along with their pack as well okay. because they've become zombie zombie. Um, <laughs> so those are actually they're even it's so much it's like forty six times more likely to forty six percent more likely to become a pack leader if they've been infected by this so, okay, parasite. So these are charismatic zombies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it makes them they're like yeah I don't need you I can yeah. go out on my own even though it's. For other other wolves is like no that's scary out there i want to stay with my pack for protection uh-huh. these ones are like no i don't care they'll go off either join another pack but more likely create start their own and become the leaders of new packs it's interesting that it, it only controls their fear part mm-hmm. of their brain yeah because they the thought is they're gonna get or the parasite wants them then to get eaten by a cat a wolf is not going to do that or right. very rarely going to do that. So in that case, it just stays in the wolf and and does it. keeps trying to do its thing. But because a wolf isn't going to get eaten by a cat, it just ends up taking over and becoming part of this wolf 
his like I don't mm-hmm. give a shit yeah. attitude. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And actually with this one, all the other ones, humans can't be affected by it, but with taxoplasmosis, which is why people are, some people don't like cats or dealing with poop because we can be affected by it. So it could come and make us less fearful. Um, It can give people behavior changes, road rage, even schizophrenia. If it got real bad. Road rage, what a weird side effect well because it's just making you it's behavior changes so it's just making you i don't know more emotional Mm -hmm. or hot-headed okay i mean like i don't you cut me off i don't care yeah i don't know anyway so different kinds of zombification in that they're just losing control over their mind or their body their mind and their body in order to feed other things. And this is where zombie sci-fi came from. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because it exists in the real world. Yes, it does. Yes. Segue into real zombies. <laughs> okay, so I am going to talk about Haitian zombies. Uh, first, I just kind of want to do a little bit of a history lesson on Haiti. Let's see if I can do this off of memory. Obviously, this is not a full history lesson on their history, but just a little tidbit, uh, give you a little background on, on their society. Between 1780 and 1790, 370,000 Africans were, in, were brought to Haiti for slavery, for I mean, mostly sugar plantations. They were like one of the or maybe the top exporter of sugar for the entire world. Obviously, it was a, a colony. It was a French colony at the time. And they imported so many Africans because they the working conditions were so terrible that they only lived for like one or two years. Oh, geez. They would live for like, I think it was like one to three years, the slaves would, and they would just die and they'd dispose of them and get more. Like, that's, that's just, terrible. yeah, they didn't care about keeping them, obviously. But then there was a group of slaves. I don't, I can't remember if they were specifically native to the island or if they were Africans or possibly both that had escaped their slavery and they retreated to the mountains and created their own civilization where they could practice uh, voodoo, uh, which is their religion or uh, so it's not actually a religion. It's actually more of just spiritual practice because a majority of Haiti is actually Catholic. But if you didn't know this, this is very interesting. Haiti is one of the only countries to have a successful slave uprising. So in 1791, hmm. those people who had retreated to the mountains, uh, gathered together and got with a lot of slaves and, had the slaves commit to murdering their owners and they had a revolution and it was successful and the slaves won. And like to the point where some of the French people who were there decided to go on their side because then the British and uh, the British, the French, there was somebody else were coming in, but there was also fever going on. There was a lot going on, but anyway, it was so it, they then became the first independent black republic in the world. Ah, oh, great. Yeah. 
So those, those people were called the Maroons, uh, the ones that had oh, retreated yeah. into the mountains. Mm -hmm. So after that happened, the Maroons kind of created this, these secret societies that they, that's what they call them, secret societies. And it was basically, these were the people who maintained social order and justice. So if something was going on, they were the, what's the word? Peacekeepers? The, yeah, or, or the, the judicial system, okay. really. Mm -hmm. So, um, and one way that they kept people in line was fear of being zombified. So mm -hmm. it's a very, <laughs> it's very um, ingrained into their spiritual practice that zombification is a real thing. And it, and it had, it was like, they actually were able to do this. Mm -hmm. So the names for the, the secret societies were called bazongos. <laughs> which is funny. So you have like different areas have different bazongos. So the process of them creating a zombie is they have these, they're sorcerers, witch doctors, medicine men, they're called bokors mm -hmm. and they create a powder that nobody knows exactly what is in it. And it varies from one bokor to the other but there's always human bones in it mm -hmm. and there's different kinds of plants. There's different kinds of toads and salamanders and, and fish, lots of different fish in them. They create, they go and they do their ceremony and create this powder. And then the powder, it used to be, it can be absorbed through the skin. So it used to be, they would lay the power powder across the threshold of the house of the person they wanted to make a zombie. And then when they stepped on it, it would be absorbed through their feet. It wasn't just something that they did just willy nilly. It was, they had tribunals. They had, if people is basically for criminals, right? They didn't believe in murdering. They didn't believe in killing mm -hmm. their criminals, but they had to have, but the, for them, the bigger fear was uh, becoming a zombie and losing all of your free will. So would the person know that they had been sentenced, sentenced to this? Because like if they were just putting it on the threshold, was it a surprise? Surprise! A surprise! <laughs> Zombie surprise! Um, it, I think it probably went both ways. I think there was probably because some sometimes they would be brought before the a group of of higher higher ups. What, what would you the secret society, mm -hmm. the uh, bazongo? They would be brought in front of them, and then they would um, determine. There. And it'd be sentenced. Yeah, like a sentencing kind of thing. Yeah. But then I'm sure, I'm sure it happened without people's knowledge. You know, I'm sure there were probably bokors that if you pay them, they'll do it. You mm -hmm. know, like there's no telling. They're so secretive about their process and about the entire thing. Nobody, nobody in the outside world really knows exactly everything about it. You know what I mean? Gotcha. But it can also, the powder can be just like blown in your face or like just it's anything. Mm -hmm. So that powder then gets the person very, very sick. It's the same situation where it paralyzes their body and it slows down their metabolic rate so much that legit doctors think that they're dead. Mm hmm and then they are then buried. They're buried usually within like a day because, uh, because it's so hot there and they don't mm -hmm. have refrigeration, whatever. So they're buried very quickly. And then the Bokor comes uh, that night after they're buried and digs them up, somehow revitalizes them, like has an antidote for it. 
then they go through a ceremony where they take that person's, uh, it's, they call it T-Bonange. So it's uh, the good angel is your mm. soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take their soul and they put it into a vessel, most likely like a ceramic vase or whatever. And they wrap it in a personal effect uh, or clothing from, from the big, say victim, I don't know, from the criminal or the person, mm-hmm. <laughs> from the zombie. Um, and they wrap it, the vessel in that, and it is then kept by the Bokor in a secret place that only he knows about. Okay. And the per- person goes on living? So the person is then alive, but the Bokor now feeds him a paste that is made uh, from various plants and uh, like hallucinogenic kind of plants or whatever. And it messes with their psyche so much that they then believe and they believe in zombies. So then they are now his slaves. So then they, they are used as slaves in actual farms or construction or whatever. And the zombies, then they are, they live like this. They have no, feeling, emotion, whatever, they are zombies working for the Bokor until the Bokor dies. And once the Bokor dies, then the spell, I guess, is lifted and the spirit, although I don't know if the, if the spirit goes back into the body, but <laughs> it might, but then they are, then they're free to go. The most famous case of it is in 1962, this man, Clarvius Narcisse died. And, uh, it was, it was obviously, it was done by a, a book where he passed away, but it's the, this, the reason why this one is most famous is because he was, he actually went into the hospital, um, and he was spitting up blood and the doctors, and he was there for three days before he, the doctors pronounced him dead. And the reason why this is famous is because the, the doctor who was working there was actually an American doctor. And so it was like, documented he had a death certificate so then they later that day or i don't know the next day or whatever they buried him and then he later that night the bokor came and they and dug him up 1980 this is 18 years later he shows up in his hometown in his home village and finds his sister and the only way she believed that it was him was because he told her he was, he used a name that that was his nickname when he was a boy. And he told her things that nobody else would have known. And so he found his way back and he was very much, he was more kind of with it, more conscious than other zombies who had returned. Cause it's not, he's not the only one. There's mm-hmm. people who have returned whatever. And he said that, the, the whole throughout the whole process of him dying, he was conscious. He could hear everything. He could hear his sister crying. He could hear the doctor pronouncing him dead. He could hear them driving nails into his Nightmare. coffin and burying him alive. <laughs> yes. So after this happened, so this was 1980, he returned. Word spread back to America because of the, the doctor. And then there was a, a group of doctors in New York who got together and they said, we need, we want to find out what this drug is that they're using to do this down there. So they got this man. He was, I mean, he was young. He was like 27 years old. He was, uh, he was from Harvard. He was uh, ethno ethnobotanist. Mm-hmm. And they said, we need, we want you to go down to Haiti 
and get a sample of this powder so we can determine what's in it. He's not the first to try to do this. Mm -hmm. They don't like outsiders coming in and trying to get their secrets, right? It's all very, very secretive. So he says, okay, he takes it on. He goes down there and he gets a sample within a couple of weeks because he was just a really, you know, guy that could, you know, yeah. A streetwise, streetwise guy. Right. Mm -hmm. So he actually tricked. Um, well, so he got a sample from a book whore. He sent it back to the labs in New York and then, or he might've gone back, whatever. It doesn't matter. They, the labs determined that there was nothing active in it. There was no anything in it. Mm -hmm. And so he comes, goes back to the book whore and he says, you know, he confronts him in the bar in front of all his friends. And he's like, you're a charlatan. You know, you didn't, this isn't real. You don't know what you're doing, blah, blah. And so that pissed the guy off. And he's like, well, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. if you really want it fine. And so he gives it, he gives him an actual one. And he, this, did I tell you his name? The science, the ethnobiologist, his name is Wade Davis. Sorry. Okay. So this was, um, I think in 1982 that he's down there. And he, so he gets an actual vial of the thing and he apparently has like some skills in sleight of hand and pretends to like pour some on his hand. And the book thought that he did. And the book was like, you're a dead man. Like what are you doing? Mm -hmm. But it impressed him so much that he then earned the respect of the book So then the book then took him and actually showed him how he made the powder and whatever. They found that the active ingredient in it was from a uh, puffer fish. Mm -hmm. Tetrodotoxin is what it's called. And just to give you an idea, the tetrodotoxin is 16,000 times more potent than cocaine as an anesthetic and a thousand times more toxic than potassium cyanide. <laughs> he said a lethal dose of, of it is the size it could fit on the head of a pin. So that is what creates the paralysis and slows the metabolic rate. And, but it also retains the consciousness. And I don't know, obviously I'm not a scientist and I did not delve into like the scientific part of it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if to, as of today, if they have figured out how and why it does that, how you can retain your consciousness while it, cause it, well, no, that's not true. They, they did determine that it was, you know, blocking certain neurons. Right. right. It, if you go back to our episode about sleep paralysis, right, it's mm -hmm. probably the same blocking the same thing yeah. where you can't move, but you're conscious of what's going on. Right. But it's the slowing of the metabolic rate is like, how mm -hmm. is that crazy? I mean, it's like to the point where right. you are pretty much dead. Pronounced it. Yeah. And side note, I know you probably know this in Japan, the mm -hmm. puffer fish is a delicacy mm -hmm. and only certain chefs in the country are like licensed to cook it. And because if you do it in the right way, then it creates that kind of euphoric sense because it does create a sense of like flight, you know, like, like you're flying yeah. and, but apparently dozens of people still die from it each year in Japan from eating it. Yeah. And there was this one story that I came across that was, um, there was a man in Japan that ate the pufferfish. This happened to him where he was in a catatonic state. He was declared dead. The doctor was about to do an autopsy and he Ooh. went to go put the knife in it. And the man just shot up on the table and the doctor so scared he died of a heart attack. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> 
so so don't eat pufferfish. Yes, do not eat pufferfish. But apparently, a lot of people do eat pufferfish, and it's. I think the poison is located in certain organs, like the liver and some other part of it. But you can eat the rest of it. But then they were saying that it was like they're so toxic that even if you touch a spine, it can be, but then another person was saying it's only toxic 50% of the time. So you don't, and it's like, well, why even try? Yeah. (laughs) That's why you've got to be specially trained and certified to do any, to serve it at all. Right. Well, not in Haiti. So, right. So I was watching this documentary and it was vice from like, I don't know, probably like the nineties. And this guy went down there uh, to do this kind of the same thing that Wade Davis did. And he went out with some guys and caught a puffer fish and the woman cooked it up for him. And he was like eating it like very hesitantly, but he's like, it's really chewy. It actually tastes exactly like chicken. (laughs) But you could possibly die. So definitely not worth it. No, I would not. Chewy chicken dying try it mm-hmm. that was the main ingredient was puffer fish yeah so the main ingredient is puffer fish but there's also a, apparently multiple other fish in it i never came across what exactly what the antidote was mm. so they would have an antidote but i never came across what it's actually made of so i'm not sure mm. what that is made of but once they revive them they then feed them this paste what i told you is so it's made in haiti it's made mainly consisting of the cocombre zombie which is the zombie cucumber and it has detura in it which apparently is uh, found in multiple things multiple places detura? around the world so detura d-a-t-u-r-a so apparently Datura brings on a state of induced psych- psychotic delirium, visions of hellfire, a burning thirst, and a sensation of flight. And, and Datura is used by black magicians all over the world, probably to control people. That was found in it? Either? So that's that yes. Datura is found in the, zom- the cucumber zombie, mm-hmm. uh, the zombie cucumber. It's just a plant like that's growing on the side of the road there, you know, okay. like all over. So I don't know if they, I guess, I don't know if they eat them or, or maybe Normally eat them. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know if they eat them on a regular basis or if they did something special to it to activate the Jutura or random, I haven't completely random and unrelated, but side of the road eating yes. <laughs> made me think of it. Kudzu, that yes thing that takes terrible over vine. on this yeah. terrible vine that takes over on the side of the road. Edible. People really? are cooking with it in like Atlanta and stuff. Well, yeah, because it's all over there. Yeah, they're like, let's just go clean up the side of the internet. As long as it hasn't it. been like <laughs> pesticided, sprayed with pesticides. Um, yeah, people are like cooking it and eating it. Sorry, completely random. Go ahead. That's okay. <laughs> so yeah, just to kind of sum it up. So so we don't know exactly what the antidote is. Here's the thing: is that people in Japan that get tetrodotoxin poisoning, they are not zombies. They come back to life and they're poison victims. Right. So what makes a Haitian, a zombie. It's that thing that they gave it's, them afterwards. And the fact that they then become their slave, they've got, they're probably feeding that to them, whatever it is. Absolutely. They're keeping feeding them. it to them constantly, but it's more, I think of a societal background because they have since the beginning of their spiritual religion or 
practice, they believe that zombies exist. So they are in belief that this is actually happening. Yeah, but I'm, but it's got to be part of those psychotropics that they're feeding them afterwards. As oh, well. but, absolutely. But they're feeling that, no, thinking that now I'm a zombie, not, right. not thinking, oh, if I just stop drinking this crap that he's giving me, I'll just... <laughs> I'll right. come out of it. But also it's because it, and it could also be because the chetrodotoxin, like there's no, they don't have like a recipe that they're following. So it's varies from one mm-hmm. batch to another. And it's like, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it kills them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it could get them, it mess them up so much that their brain is just fried and they don't know what's going mm-hmm. on. So mm-hmm. then they are just doing whatever is told of them. Interesting. But a lot of it, I think, has to do with their their spiritual background and what they were taught and what they were believe what they what they were believe <laughs> what they believe. <laughs> so, yeah, cool. That's it. Very cool. Zombies. I mean, they're real all over the place. They are real. They're just not eating our brains. No. Well, unless we find a parasite that also eats brains. Very possible. Well, unless you're a roach. And you have a wasp (laughs) inside of you. Yeah. So I did come across some like other quick zombie things. Like there was this uh, little girl, three years old in Brazil Mm -hmm. that was declared dead. And she was at her funeral and she woke up in the funeral. There was this other little, no, wait, was that one in Brazil? I can't remember. There's another one where it was a two year old and he woke up in the middle of his of his funeral, he sat up in the coffin and he asked his dad for a cup of water and then he collapsed again and they brought him back to the hospital and he was dead. Come on. Like, what is that? He just sits up and asks for a cup of water. Like, no, that's, do you think that's sort of like possession? Uh... <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't know. That is awful. I know. Can you imagine being a parent? Mm-mm. Oh my God. Well, at least the other one, the three-year-old, like, she was actually alive? Uh, yes, it was alive and didn't Do die they know again. why? It, it was this, no, I can't, I can't find, it, it's this one thing and they give you like literally a paragraph. Or is this part of like urban legends kind of No, thing? like there was a video of that one. What? So we have, I mean, it was just the video of the little girl waking up and the parents picking her up and walking out. But um, And we're just walking no, out? No, I mean, it was like... <laughs> this giant like funeral but they the dad just like picks her up and then and then it's just someone taping it with their um, and i'm sure running phone. to the hospital I yeah i'm sure just, suppose and then we have the zombie attack you, in miami oh my God, that makes me what uh the baby no like if if it had been if she had not woken up for another hour i know and they had buried her Oh my God. It's like, I feel like these days we still need to put the bells in the ground like they used to have when people were buried. (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Oh, you don't know this? Oh, this is fun. Okay. So back in the day, especially uh, whatever plague was going on, I can't even remember. People were being mispronounced dead Mm -hmm. because certain, these kind of same situations where they seemed like they were dead, but then, so they were burying them so quickly because they didn't want the the virus to spread or whatever, but they would, so many people were being buried alive. They started burying a bell. So they would have a hole in the coffin with a rope and the rope would be attached to a bell above uh, ground. So if they were alive, the graveyard, the person who works Uh the graveyard can hear the bell ringing. Oh my God. Yes. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna request that in my will. Yeah. Well, whatever. I want to be burned, so that will be dead. (laughs) I'm gonna. Well, then you need to triple check before you burn me. Yeah. Oh, and then there's this um, this drug called crocodile in Russia. Oh man, this one's rough. It like eats their skin. I don't even want to push play, Mm-mm. but um, it's like people's like just their half of their face will just be like gone, and they're so like anorexically skinny. They look like walking skeletons. What do you mean their face will be gone? Like the like, drug starts to eat away at yes, their face, the but they drug, still do it. Yes, the drug like eats the flesh off of their bones. And like, there's this one person in this video, I I guess I'll attach the video for people who want to get really grossed out. Um, There's this one person who has just like literally half of their face is gone. It's just like, you can see all the bones, the teeth, everything. And they do look like zombies. Yes. They look like zombies straight up. It's disgusting. (sighs) That's what I don't understand is why people continue to do something like that when they know when it's when it when it starts eating at your skin it's like yeah. hey maybe i should stop this but i get i mean i get that it's an addiction but also like the, i mean we it's in russia so i don't know how much help they would have <laughs> with detoxing but you know just have some willpower uh, there know. then there's this in 1945 there was a headless chicken that lived for 18 months yeah i've heard of that one yeah that's gross this one three-year-old wakes up at her own funeral Oh, that one was in Philippines. Mm. The Brazil was the two-year-old that asked for water. Terrible. But yeah. Mm. Okay. All right. I'm really nauseous now thinking. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was that it? I did have. Yeah. I had feedback from a from a listener the other day. She's like, Drew, every single one of your episodes ends up talking about sex. <laughs> So I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Maybe it's just on our minds. I don't know. Yeah. Not this one. Until Until now. now. <laughs> so apologies if that's become a thing. Yeah. So sorry if you guys don't want to talk about sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. All right. That's all we got. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. If you have anything cool, creepy, or scientific to share with us, you can email us at lastlambstandingpodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram at lastlambstandingpodcast. And a special thank you to Adam Frischertz for our theme song. Thanks for listening.